I think I left my mic unmuted on my lapel here, so if you had to hear me singing, I apologize during the service. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs chapter 7. If you've been one of us the last couple of weeks, we've been working through the book of 1 Timothy, um, but the Tomlinson family is not feeling well, and Pastor Joey um, had to press pause on our series, so we will pick that up, Lord willing, next week. Um, but this week, we are going to be looking at the book of Proverbs, if I can turn there. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 23. Just taking a large passage of Scripture. Pastor Joey, last week, he encouraged us to slow down um, as we meditate on God's Word. And we've been working through a couple verses at a time. And I was was talking with our office administrator, Pauline, when she saw the number of verses we were going through this week. I was comparing it to the illustration Joey gave last week. You know, we should chew our food. He had a friend that chewed his food one, uh, one bite 30 times. Well, this sermon might be like chewing 30 bites one time uh, with the number of verses we're working through. But by God's grace, we will um, be encouraged by it. Well, let me, let me pray for us before we jump in. I'm going to give a bit of an introduction to our text and our sermon this morning and then uh, walk through this together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we thank you for this morning, God. We thank you that we can come before you and uh, read your word and to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, God. That in light of our sin, you have saved us. God, I pray that you would help me to preach the gospel clearly, to exalt Christ and to honor you above all things. God, be with us. Would your spirit move among us? In Jesus' name. Amen. As I mentioned, we're jumping into the middle of the book of Proverbs. If you're unfamiliar with this book, Proverbs is one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament. This includes Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. These books are collections of teachings from wise men who knew and feared God. That's the definition of wisdom, to know and fear the Lord. Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, is one of, these, one of these men. He authored the Proverbs, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote our passage today. And in fact, the, the first nine chapters of the book of Proverbs are really an introduction where Solomon is calling his son to listen to wisdom. Like, like any loving parent, he, he doesn't just give commands. He doesn't just bark orders to his son to listen to me. He shows his son why listening to him is so important. And he gives instruction for how his son is to obey him. And here in Proverbs chapter 7, Solomon calls again for his son to listen to wisdom. And he gives a reason and instruction. He's calling his son so that he may be preserved from sexual immorality. And then he gives instruction on how to fight against it. And that's what our text is unpacking this morning. But our first point this morning from this whole chapter, the first point is that Scripture gives us sufficient instruction for how to fight sexual sin. Scripture gives us sufficient instruction for how to fight sexual sin. 
Throughout Proverbs and, and really the whole Bible, God gives extensive instruction and examples about sexual sin. The Bible has a lot to say about it. It does not whisper, it speaks loudly. It defines sexual sin. It's summarized in the seventh commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, which we read last week in our confession of sin. It says, You shall not commit adultery. And Jesus, during his earthly ministry, he came to fulfill and uphold God's law. He specifies in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28, he says, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This clarifies that we are all guilty of sin. I mean, any deviation from perfect obedience to God's law is sin. In Scripture, it deals with this issue head on. Primarily, it teaches that dealing with sexual sin begins with an understanding that God has dealt with sin. He has defeated sin and death once and for all on the cross. We just talked about this in our confession of sin, but Christ, He came as a man. He sacrificed Himself for us. He paid the penalty that we owe for breaking God's law. And the penalty is death. It's eternity in hell under the wrath of God. Why is that the sentence? Well, the penalty is such because God hates sin. Sin is rebellion against God and His holy law. And God is a just judge, and He will judge our sin. He will judge us. But God is a merciful judge. Right? He, he, he's a good judge. He sent Christ to die in our place. He took the wrath of God, our sin deserved, upon Himself. He paid our debt. He took our sin away. And he credited his righteousness, his perfect obedience to God's law that he lived out in this life to us. So when we stand before God on the final day, we will stand justified. We will stand right with God for all eternity. And, and not only did Christ, he, not only did he take away the penalty of our sin, he defeated the power of sin. We were, we were not only not only guilty, we were enslaved in our sin. We were dead in our sin. We were morally corrupted in our hearts. And when God saved us, when the Holy Spirit regenerated our hearts, we were given new hearts. So that we might walk in the righteousness that Christ gave. And because of this new heart that we've been given, because of this freedom from sin that we once had, we can now obey Christ through repentance and faith in the gospel. We can walk in obedience to God's commands in the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And now because God hates sin and God cares about His glory, He has given us sufficient instruction to teach us how to fight sin to the glory of God. And this includes sexual sin. So in light of what Christ has done, How does God's Word sufficiently teach us to fight sexual sin? There's three things, I think, we see throughout Scripture. First, it exposes the methods of our enemies. Our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. These methods are strategies that Satan will use to attack us. And if you know what the enemy is going to do, you can know how to avoid it. Right? You, can, you can think ahead. 
Not only that, it gives, second, it gives us defenses against those attacks. And these are, these are gospel-centered solutions. We can use the defenses in light of what Christ has done. Right? It's, his, it's His Holy Spirit that gives us the power to fight against the attacks of our enemy. We can't do it on our own. But He does it through us. And third, He provides examples for us to follow and avoid. He provides us examples to follow or avoid. And one of those examples is in our passage this morning. So in order to teach his son how to avoid sexual sin, Solomon gives an example to avoid. And our our example this morning is is a story about a young man and a married woman. And this woman is not his wife. And together they commit sexual sin. So as we read this story, I think we're going to see six methods our enemies use to tempt us. We're going to see six methods. And then in light of the gospel, in light of the finished work of Christ, as we look at the New Testament, I believe we're going to see six defenses against those attacks. So point number two, Solomon gives an illustration. This is an example to avoid. Let's read our passage this morning, starting in verse 6 of chapter 7. Solomon writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, For at the window of my house I have looked throughout my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, He does not know that it will cost him his life. Our first method we see this morning is circumstantial weakness, verses 8 through 9. The first method we see is circumstantial weakness. Satan will use our environment to tempt us. Verse 6 through 9, they they show us the, or sorry, 6 through 9, they show us the setting of the story. I'm going to read that again. It says, For at the window of my house I have looked out through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So here we have a young man that Solomon describes as lacking sense. He's void of understanding. Um, This is your, your, your knucklehead. Your, your textbook, textbook duffel pud, if you're a C.S. Lewis fan. 
Now you'll know what that is. If you don't know what that is, look that up. He's, he's walking alone. He's isolated. He's, he went out in the dark of night. He's hidden from view. And he's on the path that leads to her house. Right? He's at the wrong place at the wrong time. And it seems like he had no intentions of going to her house. Right? He's on the road, but it's clear he has no consideration for where he's heading or what could happen along the way. Right? This young man just stepped out into the perfect storm. He's not considering how problematic this, these circumstances could be. I mean, how could, they be, how could they be contributing to his temptation? How could these be an effective method to lead him astray? Well, first, he's, he's isolated. Right? Isolation and a lack of visibility can produce a sense of anonymity and a lack of accountability. And there's no one around him to remind this young man that he's accountable to God for his actions. No one else will know about it. This isn't hurting anyone. Are just two common justifications for sin that may come from someone who finds themselves in these kinds of circumstances. Second, his location. Where we spend our time will determine the kinds of temptations that arise. The young man went on the road to the house of an adulterous woman. What kind of temptations do you think he might find there? Right? It's pretty obvious. There are certain places, people, times of the day, and more that open the door of opportunity for sexual sin to creep in. I mean, we live in a day and age where the door might be wide open because of the unlimited access to our cell phones in our pockets. We must consider these things. Our circumstances are impacting us. And if we're not careful, we'll be defenseless when the temptations come. So what is our defense? What is our defense against these circumstantial weaknesses in our lives? Well, I think the Apostle John gives us an answer. He says, walk in the light. Let's look at 1 John verse, chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. He says this, But, and he's referring to, uh, he's contrasting this against people who are walking in darkness. He says, But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Here here John tells us two ways to walk in the light. First, confess your sins to God. If we regularly confess our sins to the Lord, and we we talked about this earlier in our service when we're confessing our sins, we're going to walk through the rest of our lives in every circumstance in life with an understanding that God is watching. We are accountable to Him, no matter what's going on around us. Because sin is sin against God alone. Second, we see fellowship with the church. John explicitly says this. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. It's the logical conclusion of walking in the light. Walking in the light means walking with Christ and his church. He says, and he is in the light, being God or Christ, we have fellowship with the church. So you can't walk with Christ without walking with his church. You can't separate the head from the body. They're one. 
There, I think there's too many Christians who are floundering in their fight against sin because they're not walking in fellowship with the church. Confess your sins to God and come into the fellowship of the church. Walk in the light. Our second method we see is immodesty. Immodesty. This is verses 10 through 12. The second method Satan uses is immodesty. Satan will use immodest people to catch us off guard. And I just want to give a definition for immodesty. Immodesty is any aspect of your lifestyle that does not promote godliness. Immodesty is any aspect of your lifestyle that does not promote godliness. And it's rooted in sinful desires. And this means that modesty is the promotion of godliness in every area of your life. And this is, this is purity, and we'll talk about this in a moment. It starts with desire, and it's evidenced by outward appearance. Our example illustrates this in, in verse 10 through 12. It says, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies and wait. So in our story, we see this, this young woman is dressed in immodest clothing. She adorns an outfit that indicates that she is a prostitute. She puts it on. She goes t- on her way to meet the young man. And Solomon tells us plainly that it comes from a spirit of rebellion. Right? It says she's wily of heart, which means crafty or careful. She's thinking strategically about how to attract a young man, so she dresses provocatively. She wants to be noticed, so she's loud and wayward. And she makes herself as accessible as possible. She's at every corner, lying at wait. She's doing everything she can to get what she wants, and the result is ugly. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22 says, As a ring of gold in a swine's snout, so is a lovely woman who lacks discretion. I mean, this, this woman's dress and behavior indicate that she lacks discretion. She doesn't have categories for what's proper and improper. Now, all that matters is, uh, is, is what she wants, and there's no consideration for what God wants. Now, I, I don't think it would be, and I, I was telling some of you this uh, earlier in a devotional, but um, I don't think it would be beneficial for me to spend time explaining to you what I think women should wear. Um, I think that would be pretty inappropriate. All I know about women and their clothing is that pockets and dresses are a really big deal right now. It's, it's like a big thing. Other than that, I'm out. What is appropriate to say here is that those who seek to honor the Lord with their whole lives will find understanding in this area. If you ask Him for discretion and wisdom, I believe you will get it. He will show you the way. Now, when it comes to immodesty, I want to take, an, uh, take a moment uh, to address the issue of responsibility. And I hinted at it earlier. Who is responsible for the sin here? Right? She's dressed provocatively. She's standing on the street corner. I mean, is she the one to blame for all of this? I mean, she's, she's dressed like that. Is he just a victim? I mean, he's a knucklehead after all, right? He wasn't thinking. He's void of understanding. Well, I think what's important to recognize is that this woman's immodesty is not the cause of the young man's sin. 
And this young man does not cause this woman to sin. A woman's sin comes from the sin in her own heart, and the the sin of this man comes from the sin in his own heart. Now, Satan will use another person's sin to tempt us, but we are individually responsible before God for our own sin. This this understanding of modesty has been an issue in the church. In a a pragmatic church culture, there's some well-intentioned brothers that have mainly taught that women should dress modestly for the sake of their brother's well-being. I think this is a good reason. But it's not the first reason we should live modestly. It's not the one that we should herald. Some, at, at their worst, have taught that women, if women don't dress modestly or live modestly, they're to blame for the sexual sin of men. Many women have been giving counsel that if their husbands are acting out, or not, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're somehow not meeting the needs of their husband and causing them to act out. Now, there might be all kinds of issues at play here. But this line of reasoning makes women out to be the author of a man's sin. And and it could go the other way. Only Satan is the author of evil. He's the tempter. He may use another person's sin to tempt you, but they are not the reason for your sin. You are responsible for your sin and your sin alone. Certainly both men and women should dress modestly for the sake of others. We should spur one another on to love and good works. But primarily and foundationally, we should seek to live our lives modestly because we live before the face of God. You're going to see this recurring over and over. We fight sexual sin by understanding that we live before the face of God. This, begins, this brings us to our defense. What, what is our defense against immodesty? We live modestly by pursuing Purity. Our defense is to pursue purity. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you have been bought, body and soul, by the blood of Jesus. Christ's blood was shed for us. Not because there was anything good in us. We were enemies before he saved us. But he shed his blood purely because of unconditional grace. He took us in while we were filthy, we were unclean, and he cleansed us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And our bodies, now that we have the Spirit dwelling inside of us, are temples of the living God. Christ is now in us, and we are to live in light of that reality. The Apostle Paul captures this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18-20. He says this, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. We must live in light of what Christ has done because we are not our own. Christ owns our bodies. Christ is our Lord. He saved us and He rules over us. He cleanses our hearts and commands us to walk in purity. So you have to ask yourself, do my lifestyle choices reflect the purity of Christ's blood that He provided for me? Do my lifestyle choices reflect the purity of Christ's blood that He provided for me?
And am I living every area of my life for the glory of God? Defend yourself from immodesty by pursuing purity and glorify God in your body. Method number three. Method number three. We see seductive arguments. The third method in our text, seductive arguments. Satan will use these seductive arguments to persuade us to give into temptation. And we can really break this down into two categories in our text here. We see, we see a sudden argument and a sustained argument. A sudden argument and a sustained argument. A sudden argument in verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. At the beginning of this first phrase here, it says, She seizes him and kisses him. The, the adulterous woman, she began with a surprise attack. And all of a sudden, she is in his face. I mean, something similar might happen to us, right? Temptation can come upon us so fast, it's shocking. You, just, you might just be minding your business one day, and all of a sudden, the darkest thought just pops into your mind. Right? The evil that's within us is, is sometimes shocking. It, it shows us that we don't really understand how sinful we really are. We also see a, a sustained argument in verses 14 through 21. Right? Here she gives a long speech that, she summarized, or that Solomon summarizes in verse 21. Look at verse 21. It says, With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. Right? Not only does she seduce, try to seduce him quickly, she, she takes time to build a case for why he should come with her. She follows this up with a convincing argument. And she fills this guy's mind with lies and deceptions. I think more often than not, sin, sins are born from sin sowed over time. That's kind of a tongue twister. Sins are born from sin sowed over time. There's a progression. It's like boiling a frog. I wish I had my southern Georgian friend here to uh, relate with this. Um, when a frog is placed in, in boiling water, right, it, it jumps out immediately. But if you place the frog in the water before it's boiled and, and increase the temperature ever so slowly, the frog won't notice and will die. And the same thing can happen to us with sustained temptation. It may go unnoticed until it's too late. So what's our defense against these arguments? What's the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. We must soak in the Word of God. This is our defense. Soak in the Word of God. Christ, Christ, He's our example here. He, he fought the temptations of Satan with the Word of God in the wilderness, in the desert, after He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. In response to Satan's attacks in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, and he says, It is written, Man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so as followers of Christ, we follow in his example. For sudden temptations, for those surprise attacks that come, we prepare to fight by memorizing Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Memorizing the Word of God is a means God's given us to defend against the attacks of the enemy. When that sinful thought pops into your mind or that person that rubs you the wrong way sits next to you on church on Sunday morning, you have a gospel message ready to preach to yourself right away. For sustained temptation, we must meditate on Scripture. We must meditate. 
Psalm chapter uh, 119, verse 15. It says, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. Prolonged temptations must be attacked with regular, ongoing, and lifelong study of the Scripture. They keep us tied to the truth of God's Word. They keep us focused on Christ. And by God's grace, it'll help us avoid the, the incremental slides away from the truth that so easily occur. So defend against seductive arguments with soaking in the Word of God. Method number four, religious veneer. The veneer is something that looks nice on the outside that covers up something that's cheap underneath. A religious veneer. Verses 14 through 15 and verse 18. So often, temptation creeps in under the guise of religion. This woman is using religious language, like love, to make it sound acceptable. In verse 18, it says, Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. We talked about this last week in 1 Timothy. Right? Love is a biblical word. God owns that word. He's the one that defines what love is because he is love. And this woman is blasphemously twisting that word to make her selfish desire seem righteous. And she's, she's appealing to her right standing with God as the reason for why she came out to sleep with this young man. Look with me at verses 14 through 15. It says, I have made peace offerings with you today, and I have paid my vows. So I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. We see in the text, she's just made a peace offering. She's claiming that she went to the priest, the priest atoned for her sin, and because of this, she can now do whatever she wants. She thinks for, for whatever reason, the sacrifice that God gave to pass over her sin somehow justifies her freedom to sin again. But what is she thinking? I mean, what's going through her head? Well, she thinks forgiveness is cheap. She thinks she can sin today and go back to God tomorrow. God's gracious, right? I mean, how arrogant. How arrogant. That's presuming upon the grace of God. The Apostle Paul speaks directly to this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. He says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I mean, this, is, this is so important. The Apostle Paul is teaching here that Jesus did not die so that you could live however you want to live. He died so that you could die. He died so that you could die to yourself. You could die to your sin. Right? He died so that the, the sin that once enslaved you, the sin that once consumed you and destroyed you, would no longer have at any power over you. Right? Jesus was raised from the dead so that we would be raised with him to newness of life. Right? His, his bodily resurrection confirms and ensures our re- resurrection. We live because he lives. So you were buried with Christ, you died. And those who have died no longer live in their sin. There's no other option. 
You must die to your sins. So what's our defense against this? What, how do we stop making justifications for sin and honor the grace of God that he's given to us in Christ? How do we, how do, we do this? Well, defense number four, it's to cultivate humility. So we defend against religious veneers by cultivating humility. James speaks to this in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. He says, but he, being God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Because God gives grace, the the conclusion, the consequence of God's grace should be humility. Grace is unmerited favor. We've received what we don't deserve. We're not entitled to God's grace on our own. We don't save ourselves, right? Because of this, humility is the natural consequence of God's gift of grace. How do we we humble ourselves in submission to God? Well, James tells us in verses 7 through 10. It says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And all these commands, all these exhortations that James is giving can be summarized in an exhortation to prayer. Prayer is inherently an act of humility. If we pray, we're acknowledging that God is sovereign and we are not. We're acknowledging that God has the answer and we do not. He's in control and we are not. We resist the devil by drawing near to God in prayer. We ask him, lead us not into temptation. This is an act of humility because he has power to overcome temptation, and we don't. We cleanse our hands and purify our hearts by confessing our sin in prayer. We ask him, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And this is an act of humility because we are acknowledging that he alone can provide forgiveness because sin is against God alone. Let's be people that cultivate humility before the Lord. Method number five. Method number five. Poor investments. Poor investments. Verses 16 through 17. She says this to the young man. She says, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. This woman has spent a significant amount of money in preparation for this night. She tells the young man she has spent it all for him. Right? These, these things are the finest quality. I mean, the total cost would probably astound us. Um, and although this may be lavish, elegant, appealing, right, the purpose for it is abhorrent. This costly investment is directed poorly. That's what makes it a poor investment. Instead of focusing her time, her attention, her resources on her God-given responsibilities, she's, she's a wife, right? She's, she's got a home. She probably has children. Instead of tending to those things, she's attending to her own selfish desires. Now let's go back to her argument, right? How, how, how could this be appealing to the young man? What, what could Satan be using to tempt him? She's promising a luxurious experience. She, she's saying this is going to be the time of your life. So she says. Proverbs 5, verse 3 says, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. 
And in this proverb, Solomon is teaching that sexual sin is appealing. It promises pleasure and intimacy. And the more time, energy, and resources spent cultivating that desire, the more appealing it's going to seem. This is what Eve did in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, she saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desired to be made, make one wise. So she took and ate. Or she saw, she considered, and she ate. She made a poor investment considering the fruit in the garden. Because of that, sin entered the world. So how do we avoid poor investments that lead to sexual sin? Our defense against this is to invest wisely by investing in your marriage lavishly. Defense number five, invest lavishly in your marriage. If the woman had directed this kind of investment into her marriage, it would have been honoring to the Lord and a blessing to her husband. I mean, there's nothing wrong with prioritizing or highly valuing your marriage. Outside of your commitment to Christ, your, your spouse is next, right? And in fact, it, it's expected that your marriage be the center of, at the center of your life as an intimate reflection of the gospel. Ephesians chapter 6, 23 through 24, it says, For the husband, husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body it is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Right? Husbands, as, as the head of their home, are, are to follow Christ's example of self-sacrificial leadership. Right? Women are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And we worked through this text recently, so if you uh, go back to our sermon archive, there's a sermon on marriage. I encourage you to go listen to it. But we see marriage as an opportunity to serve Instead of to serve ourselves, to, to satisfy ourselves, to serve others, to serve our spouse. When we focus our intention and, and invest in the responsibilities God's given to us, Christ will be exalted, God will be glorified, and marriages will flourish. All right, and finally, number six, disordered homes. Disordered homes. Verses 19 through 20. It says, For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. She's using the distance of her husband as a justification for her decision. He's away. He's not here. So this must be okay to do. My, husband's, my husband won't know. This, this isn't hurting anybody. Right here we see the effects of isolation on her. Now we don't know why the husband went on the journey. We know it's a long one. It's an expensive one. It's one from which he plans to return. We know those details, but the reason for the trip is obscure. Regardless, the problem is not the husband's decision to go. The problem is what happened when he left. His wife, instead of preparing for him to return, she prepared her home for another man. And regardless of whether the woman was rebelling against her husband or if, if she was following after his, good exa- or his poor example, right? he, he, he's responsible. By God's design, as I mentioned above, or earlier, because I'm reading this, husbands are to be heads of their homes. Right? They're the ones responsible for the stewardship of their marriages and will give an account to God for it. So this brings us to our last defense. In order to guard against disordered homes, men must order their homes by leading courageously. So defense number six, lead courageously. As I mentioned a moment ago, 
Marriage is a reflection of the gospel. Husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And God gives very specific instructions for how to address this. In Ephesians chapter 6, 25-26, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Husbands are called by God, as head of their home, to follow Christ's example by loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Washing their wives with the water of the word. And there's three ways we can do this, and we'll close. Three ways. So you can lead in, in teaching the word in your home. You sanctify your, your wives by leading them by teaching the word in your home. Open your Bible with your family. Second, lead in repentance. Confess your sin in light of the word. And third, lead in obedience to Christ. God's word says it, so we're going to do it, no matter what. Right? Any man who stands courageously on this, on the word of God, will receive the blessing of God and, have def- and will have defended himself and his family from the attacks of the enemy. So where do you stand? Where, where are your defenses when we look at these things? Where, are they short up? Are they being overrun? Are they being dismantled? And if you're walking in darkness, Solomon has the warning in verse 22 through 23. After all these temptations have been assaulted, Upon him, it says, all at once he follows her, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. But if you're in the dark, get out. Come to Christ. This is life or death. We serve a God that's gracious. Christ is ready to forgive. Christ came to seek and save the lost. But if you're a sinner, confess your sin, God's ready to forgive. A few takeaways for us this morning. They're not in your bulletin this morning. We'll post them online, so don't feel rushed to write them all down. A few takeaways. First, find comfort in the sufficiency of Scripture. It's truly able to to help us resist every temptation. Second, spend time reflecting on the spiritual condition of your defenses. Right, are there any that need to be shored up? Are there any gaps that the enemy has broken through? And third, if you're indulging in sexual sin, flee from it. Repent quickly and come to Christ before it's too late. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, God, that it's able to equip us, to train us in righteousness, God. God, I thank you for um, the beauty of your gospel that frees us from sin, God, that that, that you paid the penalty for our sin. You freed us from the power of sin, God. You have empowered us by the power of your Spirit to walk in newness of life. So God, I pray that we would live in honor and glory for your glory, God. We love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.